Good morning. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings at the U.S. Naval Institute. This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by Blue Cross Blue Shield Vision Coverage. What makes good vision coverage? Things like fully covered vision care exams for all members, access to over 125,000 independent providers and national retailers. That's why you should choose Blue Cross Blue Shield FEP Vision. Plans start as low as $12. See what we can do for you at bcbsfepvision.com. All right. Uh, well, welcome back. This is the second episode of the podcast today. And um, in October at the Naval Institute, the U.S. Naval Academy, we co-hosted a conference in the Jack C. Taylor Conference Center that was titled the Russia-China Partnership, a challenge to the new world order. We had an all-star cast of speakers and panelists, including my guest today. The Honorable Randall Shriver is chairman of the board of the Project 2049 Institute. He served as the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Indo-Pacific Security Affairs from January 2018 through December 2019. Prior to his confirmation as Assistant Secretary, Mr. Shriver was a founding partner of Armitage International LLC, a consulting firm that specializes in international business development and strategies. He was also a founder of the Project 2049 Institute and served as its president and CEO. Previously, he served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs. From 2001 to 2003, he served as Chief of Staff and Senior Policy Advisor to the Deputy Secretary of State. And in the 1990s, he worked in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, including as the Senior Officer responsible for the day-to-day -day management of U.S. bilateral relations with the People's Liberation Army and the bilateral security and military relationships with Taiwan. So great insights to a lot of things that are happening today. And prior to his civilian service, I got to say, because he's one of us, he served as an active duty Navy intelligence officer. Uh, Mr. Secretary, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Bill. All right. So I want to start with current events because, boy, there's a lot happening in China right now. Um, so large protests erupted in multiple cities around China over the weekend, certainly the largest protests uh, since uh, since COVID. Um, a lot of them were calling for an end to the COVID lockdowns. Uh, surprised to see the size of these rallies, especially just a month or so after Xi Jinping secured his third term. Uh, so what's your take on what's happening in China today? Well, it's not unusual for there to be uh, public protests, but they tend to be very localized. The unusual thing about these protests is they are apparently uh, nationwide and there is a unifying uh, concern and issue, which is, as you mentioned, the COVID lockdowns. So this has to be a pretty significant, of pretty significant concern to the CCP leadership. And we're seeing them respond uh, in that fashion. They've uh, closed some of the universities. They've closed off some of the major streets that have been uh, places where uh, the public has, has carried out some of these protests. Um, so it, it's uh, got to be of concern to the leadership. And, I, and you know, it's, they're, they're in a tough sp spot because these uh, COVID zero policies and the lockdowns have been so severe and, and have carried on for so long. But Xi Jinping has declared this approach a success. So how do they get out of that cul-de-sac? Uh, uh, they've got to find a way out. Um, their vaccines aren't great. The elderly population in China is not uh, well vaccinated um, and it's strangling the economy. But so far, the leader has signaled that this is the right approach. So politically, it's difficult for them to, to back out of that cul-de-sac. But I think they've got to do it if 
if they want to, uh, you know, return to some common stability there in China. Uh, from from my reading of it, it sounds like there was an apartment fire uh, with what ten or so people died in that fire, and there's there's some uh, speculation, maybe stronger than speculation, that 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 the COVID zero, the lockdown, the fact that they kind of lock people into these apartment buildings these days was was cause for the deaths, if not the if not the fire itself. People couldn't get out of the building or couldn't get out of the building fast enough. Have you heard any more details on that? Not a lot more details, but you're exactly right. That's what spread into Chinese social media and was picked up by some of the Western media. A fire in Urumqi, which, of course, in Xinjiang. So there's all kinds of uh, security protocols in place in Xinjiang. So it could be a combination of the COVID lockdown and other uh, security procedures that made it difficult for people to get out of that uh, building, but uh, certainly tragic and seems to have caught the imagination of many of the Chinese people. Yeah, I want to ask you, uh, just because you've spent so much time in your career focused on China, and we hear so much about, you know, the the great firewall of China and China's ability to, to control the internet, to control um, you know, social media. And, and this is not just uh, localized to Xinjiang, as you said, where it started, but it's erupted across multiple cities, major cities and universities. So I'm, I'm curious how, um, you know, if you have any insights into how the, uh, the protesters are organizing or perhaps getting that message out uh, and, and, you know, how, how long it would take the, uh, the Chinese government to, you know, find them all and crack down because that's got to be going on, right? Yeah, so the ability to control the internet is still limited, even though the, the Chinese are very sophisticated and, and use uh, sophisticated algorithms to search for particular phrasing and words on the internet. Um, first of all, there's a, there's a need for rapid response when something like this occurs, and, and they generally can't, even with all their capabilities, respond so fast that the word is completely contained. And number two, the uh, Chinese citizens have gotten quite creative about getting around restrictions and controls using code words and, and phrases that uh, refer to uh, certain things that are well understood among the Chinese citizens but don't necessarily catch the immediate attention of the censors. So there's a reason Winnie the Pooh is uh, not allowed on the internet in, in China, and that's because for a while that was a term that uh, was used to describe Xi Jinping. Uh, it's a bit of a humorous anecdote, but there's a serious point behind it, which is as good as the Chinese uh, Communist Party is, there's a lot of creativity among the Chinese people to spread the word. And, and there's old-fashioned mechanisms as well. I mean, calling people out to the street corner is uh, still in fashion in some of these uh, major population centers. And a lot of it is, is word of mouth and, and uh, relative to relative friend to friend. Got it. Uh, interesting stuff. Um, so after you left the Pentagon at the end of 2019, you went back to the Project 2049 Institute. Uh, a lot of our listeners are familiar with the year 2049 being the uh, the hundredth anniversary of Communist Party rule in China. Uh, so, what's the, the the mission and focus of the 2049 Institute? Well, ultimately, it's to support U.S. policymakers and those that want uh, the U.S. well positioned to secure the future of a free and open Indo-Pacific. But our particular role in that is to study and analyze uh, the Chinese uh, Communist Party, the PLA, and their modernization efforts 
And we apply a particular methodology of using uh, Chinese language capability to look at open source materials, as well as um, pretty sophisticated analysis. We have uh, very accomplished members uh, from the IC who've retired uh, and understand at least the, the, the basics of uh, analysis. And so combining Chinese language and analytical capability even though it's open source and unclassified, we think we still provide a pretty sophisticated line of products and events. And I think we've been able to demonstrate that the Chinese have ambitions, have aspirations that are in conflict with our own and that they are building the capabilities, uh, particularly in the PLA, uh, to pursue those interests and, and aspirations. And that we're seeing the implementation of all of that unfold in, in near real time. Uh, we've seen it in the South China Sea. We've seen it with respect to their ambitions toward Taiwan and in the East China Sea. So these are things we're studying as they're happening. And so for us to be able to provide support to the U.S. policy community, it requires uh, a lot of vigilance. And, and that's what we do. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so our readers and our podcast listeners are really quite well versed on China's military buildup and modernization, particularly the speed of it over the last decade. They understand the term anti-access area denial. They've heard retired Captain Jim Fennell talk about the PLA Navy, the Coast Guard, the maritime militia, those efforts to intimidate regional neighbors uh, and, and assert sovereignty in the South China Sea. Uh, they understand that 2049, the 100th anniversary coming of the CCP rule. Uh, when you talk to audiences about China, about Taiwan and East Asia, what are the most pressing points you make? I think number one is that the stakes are high, that we're talking about uh, a near peer, a, a great power rival that has ambitions to undermine the free and open order in the Indo-Pacific, which is the most critical region for us. If you look at population size, economic interests, um, uh, military uh, activities, most of the objective measures that, that matter would suggest this is the most important region to us. And we have a, a great power competitor who seeks to undermine the order uh, that, that we've helped create and, and, frankly, that they've benefited along with other countries in the region. So the stakes are high. The Chinese have a, a vision and have aspirations that are contrary to what we would like the future of this region to be. And they're in the process of implementing a very comprehensive plan to achieve that uh, end state of, of theirs. So uh, we try to stress that... It, it's, a, it's extraordinarily consequential, and it requires uh, action on our part, not complacency. Gotcha. Um, so you've, you've spent a lot of time in your career, both State Department uh, and uh, in the Pentagon, uh, focused on East Asia, focused on the, Ch the Chinese problem, if you will. At least it's a problem now. Um, uh, if you would describe for us the focus of your effort when you served in the Pentagon as the Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Indo-Pacific, what was a typical week like in that job? And what were your main goals? So, I, first of all, I would say um, uh, I'm not sure any one week was the same as the, the previous or the next. But um, uh, first of all, I travel a lot. So I was in the region uh, not every other week, but pretty close once every third week because it is a, a pretty vast region and uh, wanted to make sure in addition to our major allies was, was also able to visit with emerging partners, including uh, small countries in Southeast Asia, South Asia. So there was a great deal of travel 
Um, there were also some uh, issues that became uh, very uh, hot, if you will. I spent a lot of time on the North Korea problem, uh, traveled to Pyongyang a couple of times, uh, traveled to the border at Panmunjom to support the negotiations uh, for the summits that President Trump and Kim Jong-un held. Uh, spent time on Afghanistan because we were involved in the early stages of the negotiation with the Taliban. Uh, but the one thing I would say is I, I wanted to have some degree of focus on the big challenge. And I had served in government before, and I understood that it was important that the urgent not drive out the important and that you don't let the inbox uh, really dominate your life. So I wanted to put out an Indo-Pacific strategy. We did. I wanted to um, change the structure of the office. We did. We renamed it Indo-Pacific Affairs. I, I, I was originally sworn in. Uh, as uh, Asia-Pacific, we changed it to Indo-Pacific. I wanted to create a Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the China competition piece. We did that. Um, so I, I had uh, a tremendous team, great support, uh, but I was very intentional about keeping an eye on the, on the big problem and the big challenge uh, so that we weren't totally overwhelmed by the, by the inbox, including very important consequential issues in their own right, like North Korea. Uh, but really, I wanted to be able to say at the end of a couple years, we move the ball forward with respect to our, our greatest uh, challenge, which is the challenges presented by China. I, I remember in October when you were a, a, a panelist on, on the uh, during that day of the Russia-China uh, conference. One of the things that you said that really stuck struck with me. Uh, and I and I appreciate it because the Naval Institute, I think, like your institute, is is nonpartisan. You know, we're not a political organization. We're not, you know, pro Republican, Democrat, whatever. We're we're, we're trying to seek the best answers, uh, trying to foment the best uh, conversation and discussion that will get to the right answers, uh, and and looking for, you know, how, how do you tackle the tough challenges in the world militarily in the in the maritime domain? Um, and one of the things that you you said which I really appreciated was uh, it, it's now been two and a half at least administrations where the, the United States government has has identified that China is a, a real problem. It is a national security challenge. And, uh, you know, that sort of sort of came to fruition, I guess, at the start or at the at the end of the second Obama administration. You know, there was a discussion of the Pacific pivot and you know, people can can say that maybe it wasn't as strong enough pivot as it needed to be, but but there was that pivot. There was a focus that hey, you know, the, China is no longer um, a, a potential partner. Um, they're more of a potential, if not already, a real rival. Uh, and and what they're trying to do is inimical to U.S. and, and allied interests. And then you know the Trump administration, and you served in that uh, in the Pentagon in that administration. You know, you had the 2018 National Defense Strategy, China called out as a uh, as a peer rival um, and put at the top of the list on the, you know, the, the five most important national security challenges. China went to the top. Right. Uh, and then you you pointed out that, you know, the Trump administration left and the Biden administration took over. But the Biden administration didn't change that. Right. That 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 prioritization of China at the top of the list has stayed. And so that's important, I think, when people you know, get excited about partisan politics and, you know, a lot of uh, name calling and mud throwing and that kind of thing, when we can find consistency across policy and agreement across administrations of what the priorities are, that's when the United States government can kind of make some real 
progress. So I don't know if you wanted to elaborate on it at all, but I just thought that that was a really salient point that I wanted our listeners to hear that. I always said that the Trump administration was more evolutionary than revolutionary when it came to the Indo-Pacific and the China challenge. And people would find that a little odd because it seemed like such a, a different administration, but that was mostly because of tone and style and um, uh, how the, uh, the leadership sort of portrayed uh, our position in the region. Uh, but if you really look at the policy uh, adaptations and things that we did, it very much uh, was a continuation of the previous administration's work on the pivot, as you mentioned, and uh, really leveraging a lot of the good work they did. Uh, the Obama administration was terrific on India and really laying the uh, groundwork for a, a strategic partnership there. Southeast Asia, you know, elevating the role of partners uh, almost to a, a not quite equivalent, but a very important position next to our treaty allies. Um, so I, I, you know, living it, I, I felt as though it was much more continuity than maybe the public perceived. And I think that's a reflection of a, a few things. I think, uh, number one, we have enduring interests and, and really our interests are what drive our, our policy decisions. Number two, it's that the behavior of China, China's growth, its strength in, in the region and its assertiveness is driving a lot of this. And three, it's the demand signal we're getting from allies and partners in the region uh, that are asking for more U.S. involvement in a variety of ways, but very much to include our, our military presence, activities, uh, exercises, relationships, our security assistance, very strong demand signals. So uh, I do think it is uh, more continuity, and, and I've been very supportive of the Biden administration. I think they've sharpened a lot of these tools uh, look what they did on October 7th related to semiconductors, uh, a very, uh, I think, strong move with respect to export controls in a, in a critical sector for us. So um, it, it's maybe may surprising given the difference in, in style and tone, but I see a great deal of continuity. Oh, that's great. Uh, we've got quite a few uh, questions popping up into the chat window here from our, uh, our online uh, YouTube listeners. And uh, so the first one, I want to take this one from Harry Lyme. And I think this will get to some of the work that your organization does uh, looking at open source Chinese language, um, uh, you know, sources, but how do we know how the average Chinese person feels about Taiwan? I think that's a great question. That is a very good question. And, you know, it's, it's a little difficult even reading the, the Chinese language materials because there's a tendency for people to sort of parrot what they've heard um, in their own media environment, what they're taught in schools. Um, I, if you try to measure intensity, uh, one gets the feeling that this is not an issue that the average Chinese are as passionate about as, for example, as distinct, uh, for example, with Japan, which there's a, a lot of uh, anti-Japanese sentiment in China, which seems to be very deep felt and emotional and almost a visceral response. With Taiwan, there's a little more of a fascination. Um, when the windows have opened for travel and, and Chinese tourists were able to go, there's a lot of interest in what is happening in Taiwan, what they've accomplished, um, seeing, uh, you know, people that are of the same uh, Chinese descent, uh, even uh, Taiwanese, Taiwanese, if you go back centuries, are, are 
largely from the mainland, from uh, Fujian area, um, to see what they've accomplished. And, and we know tracking through social media, they comment on, on uh, Taiwan's elections. They comment on things that from time to time will make the, uh, the, the Chinese government and the CCP uncomfortable. Just one quick anecdote. The, uh, the election of 2012 in Taiwan, uh, Tsai Ing-wen, of the, the current president, was the DPP candidate who lost uh, the 2012 election to the KMT uh, incumbent president, Ma Ying-jeou. And uh, the Chinese government decided to show her concession speech uh, on, on Chinese state media in, in mainland China. And what they thought they were showing was the defeat of the pro-independence party, that their ideas about Taiwanese ident identity had been thoroughly voted down. And then the Chinese social media started to flare up about, wow, here is a woman of wealth and privilege who just lost a democratic election and has the grace and you know the good character to acknowledge defeat and support the government. And within hours, the Chinese had to shut all that down, of course. But uh, there's, there's a certain amount of, of admiration for what Taiwan has accomplished. Now, Again, what you get through most Chinese sources we look at is, is a repeating of the mantras that they're taught. So it, so it is a little difficult thing to measure. But I, I, think there, I think as the question might imply, I think there is something there that, that we need to be aware of. If you look at the information space, for example, we talk a lot about does Taiwan have the will to fight. I think we should be exploring whether or not China has the will to fight. Um, certainly it's an authoritarian system and they can direct the PLA to do this, but uh, consider that this is a PLA comprised of uh, all of them are only children, if yeah. you will. Right. And, you know, do Chinese mothers want their sons to die for a Xi Jinping vanity project that, that may not be, you know, as, as important to them as, as it is to the CCP leadership? Anyway, it's a great question. And it's something we'll, we'll continue to try to understand better. No, I think that is a great question. I, I want to get back a little bit to uh, U.S. government uh, because you you might be the first person that we've interviewed on this show who has served in both State Department and in, um, although I now, now I take it back, uh, Admiral Harris, um, after, yeah. his, after his retirement, served as the uh, the ambassador in Korea. We had him on the show a few months ago, but, but, but you were more at the you know, coming up in both organizations and jumping from state to Pentagon and back and forth. And so, um, you know, I'm curious your take, uh, what are some relative strengths and weaknesses of the Department of State versus Department of Defense? And what were some cultural or procedural best practices that you tried to transplant from one to the other? Well, I could probably take more than the hour on this one. <laughs> um, I, I, I always uh, hasten to point out uh, that the State Department I work for was run by General Powell, Naval Academy grad Rich Armitage. My my immediate boss was Naval Academy grad retiree Jim Kelly. But uh, look, I, I love the State Department. Uh, the Foreign Service officers, the the civil servants, are every bit as patriotic and love their country and are mission oriented the way that people who wear the uniform are. Um, I think one thing that people forget is how small the Foreign Service is. Uh, we used to have, uh, we used to put in speeches for Secretary Powell, and I don't know if this is still true, but it was at the time, there are, there are more military band members than there are foreign service officers. There's more uh, U.S. military lawyers than there are foreign service officers. So this is a relatively small service, and then you spread that out from not only the Harry S. Truman headquarter building in D.C., but out through, uh, I think it's something like 165 
embassies, consulates, missions. And, and you get the point. It's a small service that's spread pretty thin. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, culturally what they do well is, is uh, try to take a sophisticated understanding of interlocutors, both friends and foes alike. You know, they're, they're interested in, in their foreign counterparts in a way that, that really probably drove them to uh, enter the service to begin with. They want that experience. And so, you know, a real deep understanding of, of interlocutors is something that um, uh, I think from time to time uh, is, is not matched in the, in the uniform services or in the Pentagon. Um, uh, I do think uh, the State Department, we, 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 we uh, tried to have meetings start on time. We tried to have decisions come at the end of every meeting. There is a, a little bit more of an academic nature of that institution, which uh, has its upsides that can create a lot of uh, creative thinking and problem solving. But sometimes, you know, when you wear the uniform, you understand that, you know, waiting for information, more information to come in can become counterproductive at some point. And, sure. you know, in the worst cases in the military can, can become lethal. But um, uh, so I think the State Department has, uh, from, from my liking, a, a bit of an academic culture. Um, the Defense Department, you know, it's it, it does drive decisions. It, it does have uh, a mission-oriented mindset. Um, uh, maybe, you know, some of the, the caricatures of rigidity are probably true. Uh, but I, I really found that I loved serving in both organizations. And, you know, if I if I could pass on anything to young people who are interested in government service, it's to be a good, good interagency citizen, understand, you know, your counterparts across the interagency, because it's really got to be one team, one fight, uh, particularly as you look at something like China. And by the way, not just State Department and Defense Department on China, but Treasury, USTR, Commerce, uh, we all need to be rowing in the same direction. So having understanding and appreciation for your counterparts in the government is really important. Yeah, great points about the interagency. Um, so earlier, a couple of times I mentioned that uh, you were part of this uh, program conference we had in October in Annapolis. And one of the discussion points of that day was lessons that China might be taking from the ongoing Russian war of aggression in Ukraine. Uh, so what do you think Xi Jinping and the Politburo in Beijing have learned or concluded so far from what's happening in, uh, in Ukraine? Hopefully they're learning that these things are hard. Um, yeah. You know, the, the Russians occupied Crimea, much of, well, parts of Eastern Ukraine, Belarus as a satellite state. That's what I would call a bit of a running start. And you look at Taiwan, uh, 80 nautical miles of water, mountainous, inhospitable terrain, um, unfavorable sea conditions, et cetera, et cetera. These, these things are hard. And I, I hope they, they, they harvest that. Um, I'm sure the PLA uh, professionals are understanding that. I don't know if that translates all the way to CCP top leadership. Hopefully it does. I think they're also looking at the reaction of the United States uh, in ways that could both produce uh, advantage for them as well as some concerns. Um, they're, they are looking very closely at our statements, including to the presidential level, about uh, nuclear weapons in Russia and how that was a constraining factor for us. Uh, but they're also looking at the very impressive cost imposition that the United States helped lead after the invasion of Ukraine and what that might mean for China. Now, they, they, 
know they have a bigger economy. They know they're a more diverse economy. Russia's a bit of a one-trick pony with energy. They know they're more integrated in the global supply chain. Um, but they are concerned that the U.S. was able to marshal this international effort at, at cost imposition and concerned about what they might face in the uh, case of, of Taiwan. Um, one other point, I think everyone on, on both sides of the strait, Taiwan and China, understand the importance of leadership in Ukraine. And, you know, if President Zelensky did something similar to President Ghani and got on one of the first airplanes, this whole thing could look a lot different. His ability to continue to govern, to get on the airwaves, talk to the people of Ukraine, talk to the international community, uh, pipe in virtually to uh, uh, allied and partner uh, legislatures, uh, critically important for the morale and, and the willingness of the Ukrainian people to fight. Um, so that cuts both ways. Taiwan is looking at very carefully at continuity of government and particularly uh, communications and how uh, President Tsai or her successors could manage the same continuity of government and communications in a contested environment. And the PLA is, and, and CCP is probably looking at uh, decapitation strategies at an early juncture in the conflict, understanding, again, the role that Zelensky has played in uh, helping uh, uh, keep his people motivated in the fight. So they're harvesting uh, the lessons as they're unfolding, and, and there are probably still more to come. Uh, but it is something that we should uh, do our best to understand. And again, it's something our institute looks at very closely. And we have a project, in fact, coming up in terms of uh, trying to understand the lessons that are being harvested on both sides of the strait. That, that, that point about leadership and continuity of government and continuity of communications is a really salient one. Good point. Uh, I'm going to take a question from another one of our uh, audience members, uh, Ryan McDonald. Uh, he makes the point, in many ways, I feel the United States has built modern China through market access and investment. Can we expect a restriction of U.S. investment into China anytime soon? Thoughts on that? Great point and good question. I mean, you know, in many ways, we did uh, help build the Chinese economy and help their and, and, and as a result, uh, indirectly contribute to military modernization there. Um, that was based on a bet that integrating China into the global economy, uh, giving them a seat at the table on regional international fora would start to shape how they viewed the region and, and the world, how they would see themselves as a participant in these matters, um, the, the so-called constructive um, um, participant, uh, I'm getting the term wrong, uh, Robert Zellick's famous um, uh, characterization of, of China. Oh, responsible stakeholder. Yes. Uh, China as a responsible stakeholder. Theory being once they're seated at the table, they understand that they hold equities uh, as much as anybody in terms of preserving the status quo and, and they would behave accordingly. Well, all of that turned out to be uh, misjudgment or uh, 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 a misfire, if you will, on policy decisions, uh, because we see that, that China has their own ambitions that are in contradiction with our own. So, um, you know, reversing some of this is difficult. Um, if you look at uh, the degree to which we are uh, integrated with China economically, it's pretty astounding. Um, to say that we want to decouple is you know, it, it might be a, a directional uh, statement, but it's it's not going to be easy. I think what we're likely to see to get to the second part of the question 
uh, is some targeted decoupling. We saw the move on semiconductors, as I said, on October 7th. Uh, I think the next area that I hear uh, members of Congress talking about, at least, would be biotech and the pharma uh, community. Uh, of course, uh, we're highly reliant on China for pharmaceuticals and, and medicines in the United States. Um, uh, and in terms of investment, uh, you will get the Congress looking at some restrictions on outbound investment from the United States to China. It seems to be one of the gaps. We did a, a inward investment reform in the last uh, Congress, uh, CFIUS reform, Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, to uh, try to tighten up controls on what China could invest in, what entities they could purchase in the United States. Nothing exists for the external uh, outbound investment uh, unless it, it's a, a clear direct investment in a Chinese entity that is on one of our entities list. But the fact of the matter is that gets washed away if you invest in different investment platforms and vehicles. And, that, and that's basically what's happening. And U.S. capital is flowing into China at tremendous rates which again, indirectly uh, will support military modernization given Chinese civil, civil military fusion programs. So this is gonna get a look and we'll see what kind of, of uh, outbound investment reviews can be constructed and how effective they'll be. Um, but uh, it won't be easy given the, the magnitude of our trade. And look, as, as my friend Mike Gallagher, the Congressman from Wisconsin said, I want to sell soybeans to China. I just don't want to sell them semiconductors. So we've got to figure out somewhere between soybeans and semiconductors where to fall on that. And that's a pretty wide spectrum. No, that's a great point. Um, I've also heard the term and I've read it in some Wall Street Journal articles that, that a number of companies are now having a, um, an ABC strategy, right? An anywhere but China strategy in terms of where they you know, build new plants where they, um, how they uh, diversify their supply chain because, because of the COVID lockdowns, but also because of concern about, you know, Xi Jinping taking on a third, third term and what that portends in terms of, you know, very tight government control and, you know, perhaps the, uh, the, 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 the military, political military tensions in, in the region as well. So um, well, that's a good point. When it comes to new investment, um, we're, we're seeing a lot of, uh, diversification into Vietnam, into Southeast Asia, in certain sectors into India. It's it's the sunken costs and, and all the investment that has gone into China and these supply chains that have been created that uh, are creating the issue for us. And that's a, that's a huge amount. But you're exactly right. When it comes to new investments, there's a lot of risk in China. Uh, frankly, there's a lot of, of, of costs and hidden costs that, that just market conditions alone uh, make other places more attractive for manufacturing and the kinds of things that China used to excel at. Great points. Um, so I want to get to something that uh, our listeners and readers are familiar with. We kicked off uh, something called the Maritime Counterinsurgency Project back in the July issue of Proceedings. It examines China's hybrid or gray zone or insurgent efforts uh, to assert sovereignty over the South China Sea. Uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the ideas of China's campaign that gray zone campaign as an insurgency uh, and what tools the U.S. and its allies can use to counter those efforts. And, you know, did you have conversations about, you know, China's behavior in the South China Sea when you were in your job as the assistant secretary? We had a lot of conversations about it. It's, it's a hard problem. And I, and I, I'm, I'm intrigued by this notion of, of looking at it as an insurgency and, and therefore opening up the 
conversation about uh, counterinsurgency strategies and and uh, campaigns that have been conducted in the past, uh, both successful and, and maybe not as successful, um, because I think there are a lot of qualities that are that that overlap there. Um, but look, it's a hard problem because uh, by definition, and when you're in the gray zone, you're trying to stay below some threshold that would uh, cause uh, a, a harsher reaction from the U.S. and allies and partners. Uh, so they're deliberately operating uh, below a, a certain threshold. That makes it challenging. It's also challenging because um, you've probably heard the term salami slicing. Uh, the, yes. the Chinese can can go at this in a deliberate incremental way and uh, at times pull back. Uh, so, you know, we sort of have to be right and vigilant for a long period of time and enduring uh, presence and, and level of activity, uh, unfortunately. You know, I think one thing we tried to do in the last administration is we said, look, uh, it's not the color of the hull, it's the activity of the vessel. So we should not be confused by the mix of hulls in terms of PLA Navy, uh, Coast Guard, maritime militia. If they're performing the duties of a military vessel in, in a mission to exert sovereignty in a legal, expansive way, it should be treated as such. Um, so I think that's sort of part of it is a shift in mentality that, that uh, uh, you know, they don't get a pass because they're, they're maritime militia. They, they have to be treated in accordance with what their mission is and their activity. Uh, I think the other big part of this is um, the, the allies and partners piece. And I think we're seeing progress in terms of, of, of an awakening, if you will, of the challenge and um, a willingness to be part of a collective response, even if not everybody uh, contributes in the same ways, but growing interest in the maritime domain awareness piece, growing interest in being able to protect one's own sovereign claims and, and at least be able to monitor and shadow in their own sovereign areas. So if you know, you're sitting in Beijing, I, I will grant that they are playing the long term, they're willing to go incremental, uh, but since they've started the land reclamation uh, projects in the South China Sea, where at least seven or so low tide elevations have been built into islands and have been uh, militarized right, with right. deployment of um, uh, certain capabilities on those islands, uh, what have they seen in response? An increase in U.S. freedom of navigation operations, an increase in the number of countries that are willing to do patrols in the South China Sea, even if it's short of a 12 nautical mile challenge. Uh, diplomatic pressure through regional fora on, uh, for example, ASEAN refusing to sign a code of conduct uh, because of Chinese uh, behavior. You've seen uh, some amount of, of sanctioning and, and naming and shaming. You know, when we kicked China out of uh, RIMPAC, the Rim Pacific exercise, uh, Jim Mattis went public and said, this is because of activities in the South China Sea. So he made it on point uh, for for that decision to remove China from RIMPAC. Um, we talked a lot about potential cost imposition strategies. Uh, I was I will say there's some work to be done, done here. Uh, I used to get called to interagency meetings and, and people would begin the meeting by almost pointing a finger at me and saying, FONOPS is not a strategy. FONOPS is a tactic. Okay, we got that out of the way. What do you got? <laughs> What do you, you know, sanctions or, or other diplomatic or political activities? 
not a lot. It's it's hard. So um, you know, we need a little more creative thinking on on how to respond to this. Uh, but I, I think in general, particularly the allied partner piece is moving in the right direction. So I'm, I'm relatively encouraged. That's great. Well, we are uh, unfortunately running out of time, and this has been a, just a fantastic conversation. And really appreciate your insights and what you're doing at the uh, Project 2049 Institute to you know, keep an eye and a focus on, on China and on uh, East Asia and on the, you know, the, the security threats that are out there that are imminent out there. Um, so uh, my guest today has been the Honorable Randy Shriver, former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Indo-Pacific Security Affairs, and now the chairman of the Project 2049 Instant Institute. Randy, thanks for your time today and your expert insights. My pleasure. Enjoyed the conversation. Okay. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast brought to you by Blue Cross Blue Shield Vision Coverage. What makes good vision coverage? Things like fully covered vision exams for all members, access to over 125,000 independent providers and national retailers. That's why you should choose Blue Cross Blue Shield FEP Vision. Plans start as low as $12 a month. See what we can do for you at bcbsfepvision.com. If you enjoyed the show, like us, subscribe to our channel, tell your friends, become a member at usni.org forward slash join. And until next episode, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.